This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Summer is the prime season for Hollywood blockbusters, but one of the most anticipated superhero movies this year is Wakanda Forever. That's due in theaters in November. It's a showcase for black excellence, not just for actors, but also for the designer who brought the Black Panther's world to life on screen. It's not just about getting people hired, it's about getting them hired, giving them equity, right? Which is giving them a place to where they have a position of power to tell that story. More on Wakanda and the rise of Black creators in Hollywood, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. You may not know Philip Boutte Jr.'s name, but if you've been to the movies, you've seen his work. He's done production and costume design for many of the biggest blockbusters in the last 15 years, including Justice League, Man of Steel, and of course, Black Panther. On that team, Boutte helped weave together cultural elements from across the continent to outfit the warriors, leaders, and royalty of Wakanda. And you'll be able to see his work again in the upcoming sequel, Wakanda Forever. Boutte is also building a home for a new generation of black Hollywood creatives as the CEO of the 9B Collective, the first black-owned concept artist studio. And Philip Boutte Jr. joins us now. Welcome to A Word, man. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk more about Wakanda in a moment, but first, just tell us a bit about what is a designer? Like, what is your work? Because I think a lot of people... They understand the acting part, the production part, the special effects part, but they don't understand the design part of Hollywood. I'm a concept artist by trade. And so what our job is, is we work a lot with the above the line creatives of a project. So like production designer, costume designer, directors, producers, and we're the ones that take the first stab at the visuals or the design of what you end up seeing on screen. So costume designer comes from, to me, like in this case, it would be Ruth Carter. She says, you know, I've got this idea for Shuri, for instance, right? I want to try and figure that out. Then we sit and we sketch and draw and then conceptualize a bunch of different designs then those go to the directors and producers. They make choices, and then it keeps coming back and forth and back and forth. What's the timeline for that kind of concept design work? Is it get back to us in six months? Is it get back to us in six weeks? How long does that take? The timeline, I mean, I work on a lot of big, like, blockbuster films, so the timeline for those is usually a bit, you know, longer. Um, I'm usually on a project anywhere from four to six months, you know, or three to four months, depending on how much there is to design. I work primarily in specialty costumes, so that's like superhero suits, space suits, like anything that has to be manufactured that doesn't exist. And so those projects can take a lot of time, right? Because you have to come up with the design, figure out what's going on, make it functional, and then there's a whole process down the line of producing that costume, which means there has to be like R&D, there has to be, you know, tons of different research for different types of fabrics, like what can be done, what can't be done, what looks good on the actor, what doesn't look good on the actor. So it's a full process. But design-wise for me, I would say if I had to put it into context, it would usually be about three to four months. Black Panther was a cultural moment. How did you get involved in that project? We knew that Black Panther was eventually coming, 
Were you hustling through Hollywood saying, hey, put me on this? Did people approach you? Did they approach the 9B Collective? How did you get involved with Black Panther? For the first film, Ruth is a good friend of mine and we had worked together before. So it was one of those things where she called me and she told me that she had an interview coming up for Black Panther and I was super excited for her, but I was also super excited to just like see if I could be a part of it. So we had a conversation and I basically just nerd unloaded on her everything I knew about Black Panther, like just full nerded out and said, this is what it is, you know, Timbuktu. I was telling her all the stuff I knew about the correlations and history and all of that stuff. And we had a really good conversation back and forth and she was telling me what she knew. So then she was like, okay, wish me luck. She went for her interview, she got the job and she hired me immediately. So that was one of the things where it was just like right out the gate. And a caveat to that was, uh, for me, it was a special moment because I was an actor from three until about 17. And the reason I stopped acting was because I didn't want to represent black men on television negatively. And all the roles that I was getting offered were negative. So for me, I got to work on Black Panther and A Wrinkle in Time with Ava DuVernay at the same time. I was kind of helping develop those simultaneously. So it felt like a real powerful moment where I could look at my young daughter at the time and I could say, she's not going to have the same struggle that I had. So she's going to be able to see, she can see Obama and Michelle, she can see Black Panther, she can see a little black girl go on an adventure in a wrinkle in time, she can see all these things. And so it felt like a full circle moment for me, truly. One of the interesting things about Wakanda is, it's almost like Springfield with The Simpsons, like nobody actually knows where it is, but you guys had to put together costumes that would resonate across the diaspora. Can you tell a little bit about that process? How did you make something to sort of fit what was unique to Wakanda, but was respectful to the continent? That's a hard one because you can't please everybody and you try to get it right, right? But the key thing was trying to be respectful. Uh, Ruth had done a bunch of research because she had done the reboot of Roots. So she had gone to Africa. All across our walls, there were tons of different tribes and like specific research about who they were and not just like learning them by name, but learning like these beads are this color because of this and these people do this because of this and they put clay in their hair because of that. So it was like really the first time for me where I kind of identified or I was able to start to break down Africa's history and not from like a westernized point of view or not from a visual of just like not understanding it. Um, and so that was the first kind of step there. And then Marvel has a great uh, visual development team. They sit and they do a lot of different conceptual work on all the characters and trying to figure them out. And they're just throwing everything they have artistically at trying to take these characters from the page and be respectful of what people look like and their general character and then expanding them and pushing them out into you know a much bigger, further place. So it was kind of a bit of research. There was uh, cultural experts, like there was all kinds of people just to make sure you know, and consultants to make sure that we weren't, you know, stepping on toes or like making sure that things we put in visually were not offensive. Um, and then trying to then expand those things to where they're not literal. So saying like, okay, I'll take this thing from here and I'll take this thing from here, but try to present it with a cultural pride. And then also keeping in context of the fact that Wakanda hasn't been colonized and it doesn't have outside influence. So they do have complex textiles and they have the highest technology in the you know Marvel Cinematic Universe and all of those things and trying to come up with stuff that was fun that represented that. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on designing for Wakanda and beyond with concept artist Phil Boutte. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. 
I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about black film designers in Hollywood with concept artist Phil Boutte. So something that's really distinctive about Wakanda, compared to any other sort of MCU franchise, I think in many respects, even compared to, say, a Wonder Woman movie, is that you have women at the forefront of the storyline, in particular black women who've more or less been ignored throughout a lot of science fiction. You know, for years, the only black woman that you had in Marvel Comics was Storm, and Storm never seemed to have a life. You know, you never found out about her family, you never found out anything, and she was running around in loincloth. As a designer, and a girl dad, as the popular term is now, what kinds of things did you take in mind when you were putting together the costumes for the Dora Milaje or for Shuri? How did you think about the black woman's body in a different way than it's usually conceived of in most science fiction or most genre films? Shuri was a challenge just because there was some different dynamics at play. We didn't have the actress at the time cast. And so it was kind of like a conceptual take at what she could be. Those first initial designs are very bright and very colorful because in the script, she's very hip. She's like right on the edge of every technology. But once we got uh, Letitia into the role, Ruth made a choice to kind of understate her because she knew how she was going to play her. She knew that that energy would bring enough to where she didn't have to overstate her costume as well. So we pulled back some of the color and that was like a fun collaboration between costume designer and actress. Then for the Dora, the Dora Marvel really wanted to present strength and so did Ruth. Concept artist Anthony Francisco, I got to give him a shout out because he's the one that did the finalized concept with Marvel that got approved for the Dora. And the concept behind that was to almost make them feel like the lionesses on a hunt. So it's like, you know, like they're the ones that like, you know, if you've got the king, which is T'Challa and, the, and he's the lion, the Dora are the lionesses. They're the ones that do the heavy lifting. They're the ones that go out. They're the ones that protect. And so from there, that thought process kind of led to the idea that they could be covered and they could be sexy and they could be powerful without being overbearing because they are in fights and they do need armor and they do need protection. So it was kind of a balance of finding that strength and then letting their strength as women shine through over the costume. Every hero has an origin story, and for you, it started with being a teen actor and then noticing something that kept happening in your auditions. Tell us about, like, the one or two moments that hit you that you were like, I cannot do this acting thing anymore. Let me move into design. It happened around the time that I was able to drive myself. So my formative years were spent with my mom, primarily in the car, going to school, doing my schoolwork. And then right after school, I would get picked up from my mom. We'd drive out to an audition. If I booked something, I'd be gone for a couple of weeks or whatever. If not, then I would just audition. And I just had a very kind of healthy, you know, schedule in that way. And the change for me happened when I started to drive. I was able to drive myself. I had also garnered a lot more connections, so I knew a lot more producers and people that were doing big shows. So it was that time where, you know, you had that initial excitement about like, oh, I'm auditioning for big shows now, like stuff that's recognizable. So I'm really excited that I have the opportunity to do this. But I would go in and they'd be like, okay, you're auditioning for New York Undercover and your character's name is Jamal. He is a gang member. He gets all shot up and then all the white people in the hospital help turn his life around. And I'm like, okay, next. No, I don't want to do that. Then they'd be like, okay, now you've got an audition for ER and you're a gang member. And I was like, again? And then they'd be like, you got hit by a bus. And it was like, again? And then it'd be like the people in the ER help turn your life around. Like, I was like, I can't do this. And so 
the process, it was just, it was multiple auditions for big shows over and over where it was the same type of blackmail or the same stereotype presented over and over again. And I remember being very conscious about it, that I didn't want to present that. Now, granted, acting for me was a challenge in the sense that that is definitely not me. So I enjoy playing those characters because it's completely outside of who I am. And there are people like that. So I wanted to represent them properly. At the same time, I am, you know, now college educated. Um, My parents are both UCLA graduates. So I didn't relate to that. And I just was like, you know, if I went on 10 auditions, at least one of them could be someone like me. That's what I was thinking. And I didn't see that at all. So I decided that I wanted to go behind the scenes and maybe take a control aspect of kind of changing the industry visually with my art, which is the only other thing that I really love to do is draw. You've worked on basically every big thing that anyone has watched in the last 10 years. How could someone spot a Phil Boutte design? Do you have like a a signature flair that reflects your design? I think I have my own like personal style or, or like tendencies when I'm drawing. But I think that the key and the secret to me being able to work on so many things is, A, I work for a lot of different designers that trust me. So repeat business, right? Making sure that I am on it and that I understand the aesthetics and the job and like coming up with ideas. But my secret has been to be malleable, meaning that I don't necessarily have something that's recognizable. I shift my style depending on what's going to be best for the project. So if we're doing an old school feudal Japan thing, I might draw like wood blocking. Like I might switch my style completely. I think that in the design aesthetic, I think one thing that's a signature for myself is I do try to really think about character from a perspective of I don't put things on them that don't make sense. We're going to take a short break. We come back more with Hollywood concept artist Phil Boutte. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Hollywood costume and concept artist Phil Boutet. When you're working on a superhero or a science fiction franchise, you have to answer to comic book nerds, and sometimes they're going to have their own opinions. How do you balance between your sort of creative expression and then catering to the fans? By the time I get to a job and it's big and they're putting multiple millions of dollars behind it, the reason it got that interest is because the fans made it interesting, right? They're the ones that made it, you know, blow up. So I think you have to start there first. So I start with the respect factor. And then I also try to find balance in good story and character design. But I'm also very verbal, which means that I am the nerd that'll be like, Storm would never wear that. You cannot do that. Like, I will very much say do not do that or this character has always been this color we must try to put it in there Um, and sometimes you get vetoed because we're not completely in control right we still have our bosses and people in the studio and everything else but I do try to at least make a conscious effort to keep true to the source material and I think that's the key we just finished wrapping up San Diego Comic-Con it was my first full Comic-Con so it was an amazing experience what was it like being back at a convention for the first time in years Was it sort of a reminder of like, oh, my God, this is a part of the job that I love being able to talk about it on panels? Was it nerve wracking because of COVID? What was Comic-Con like for you? It was uh, amazing, first off, and that is mainly due in part to you and like all of the people that I met. It was really fun because I'm very social, but I'm also like introverted at the same time. So it takes a lot to get me to go out of the house. But every time I'm out, it was the best thing ever. And so it was nice to be around artists again. It felt like a dry run, like it felt like. Getting back to Comic-Con, everybody's trying to get back to used to being like social and hanging out. I mean, it it quite frankly was 
creatively for me very invigorating. Um, and I took in a lot of stuff that I think is going to help me for the next wave of design that I have coming up. You told a great story that I want you to share. I sat in on a panel as Phil was talking about design and he was talking about Vulcans and Star Trek and how there's ideas of what Vulcans are supposed to look like, but how women and men are supposed to be dressed. And it was, it was a really telling commentary about the importance of diversity and different perspectives, even amongst comic nerds and TV nerds when it comes to stuff. Can you sort of share that anecdote and what you learned from it and why that made an impact on Star Trek? It's very early in my career. I think the first year of my career, I finished out the first year of working with costume designer uh, Michael Kaplan on the reboot of Star Trek, J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, right? So that was a big job for me. It was awesome. And I was learning a lot. And I just had started to kind of get my feet, you know, into thinking about, like, conceptual design. I sat down with Michael. Michael wanted to do, um, for the Vulcan women specifically, for Winona Ryder's character, because she played Spock's mom. He wanted to do like a shelf, this shelf that kind of made her feel, you know, in body shape a little bit more androgynous. And he was trying to kind of explain it. He didn't want her to have like a big bus line or anything like that. We couldn't really figure out what he was saying. So I asked him, I said, Michael, like, I don't understand this concept. What are you trying to do? And so he sat me down and gave me a history lesson that I still use today, which is he said, when I approach costume, I look at it historically. So right now, when you look at women's clothing, Women's clothing has always been based on what men find attractive. So, you know, a bustle, like big hips, big butt, you know, big, you know, big bust line or, you know, that type of deal. So he was kind of saying it always accentuates something, you know, heels, making them taller, nicer legs, you know, all of that stuff. So in this instance, conceptually, I wanted to find out what do Vulcan men find sexier? What do Vulcan men find attractive? And it was the brain or the mind, the intellect, right? So he wanted to diminish curvy feminine features and make it to where they had a high neckline and it really framed what they find most important which is the face or the head which holds the brain so that was the first time that i thought about conceptual thought process and then how to turn it into design and then taking historical context and then making it conceptual which is pushing it out into sci-fi and i've used that lesson in my career ever since when it comes to representation hollywood is like a lot of other industries a lot of black folk feel sort of shut out. Talk to us a little bit about your company, 9B Collective, and how it's meant to address that. Who's involved in the 9B Collective? How did you put it together? And how are you guys sort of tackling and breaking down the wooden doors, the glass doors, and the glass ceilings in Hollywood for black folk? So 9B Collective, which has really been a labor of love, was founded by myself, concept artist Michael and Wandy, and actor Aldous Hodge, who is now currently going to be Hawkman in Black Adam. We had a drink and draw, which is an event where artists come to like a bar and they order drinks and there's models that they draw live, right? So we themed it for Black History Month and it was Afrofuturism, Afropunk. So we had two models from a black agency and a male and female, and we dressed them up in Afrofuturism, Afropunk type garb. It was a concept art association event and they wanted us to kind of host it for Black History Month. It was the biggest event they had ever had, uh, biggest turnout. And the thing that was the, the craziest for me historically, just in terms of thinking about it, it really did feel like a piece of history. It was the first time I had ever seen that many black artists in one place and across all different mediums. So animation, video game, live action. We had producers and directors there. Art Station came, DeviantArt came, like a bunch of people came. So I house kept, you know, I'm walking around and talking to the artists, making sure everybody's good. And I noticed a common thread, which was everybody told the same story. I work at a huge video game company. There's 400 employees. There's only two black people that work in the entire company and we never get to work together. 
And we realized we're not isolated, we're just spread out all over LA and we're not working with each other. So that was kind of a big aha moment. And then it made me think about personally my career. I graduated in the spring of 2006, so I started in 2007 working in costume and 2019 was the first time I ever sat next to another black artist. It made me really think, and I was like, this is a, actually a problem. Like we can try to solve this and I'm very actionable. We all are, me, Mike, and Aldis are very actionable people. Like we don't like to complain. We hear something, we're like, okay, how do we solve that. I don't want to have this same conversation months from now. So we thought about it. Like we're like, let's build a sense of community and start doing more drink and draws, right? So we're like, let's start that first. And of course, that was in February 2020, March of 2020. The universe said that's not what's going to happen. But what that did is birth 9B. So that's when we started to think we need to think bigger so we can open this up. And also, too, we can fix this pipeline from the ground up. So it's not just about getting people hired. It's about getting them hired, giving them equity, right? Which is giving them a place to where they have a position of power to tell that story story. So if it's coming from your culture, we want you to be in charge of making sure that you're telling that story or saying what's offensive or what should fly and what shouldn't, right? So that was the first step. Then it's going back education-wise and also making sure that we are doing our due diligence to not just talk to high school kids, but elementary school kids and their parents, giving them the resources to support their child who loves art very early on, because then that will build more artists of color early and then they won't get drummed out in that pipeline of going through school, maybe kind of drawing, not drawing, being interested in college and then dropping out. And then there's only like one or two of us that graduate in the art field. So that's kind of the basis of 9B. And so what we did is we put together a collective of artists, just reached out, cold called. Like we spent the rest of 2020 just reaching out to artists and seeing who would be interested in kind of starting something. And we've been working on a multitude of projects and we cover live action, animation, video game, movie poster, and within those, we do character, creature, prop, vehicle, keyframe, storyboard. So we have artists that do that. And when a project comes to us, we put together a team. So they say, hey, Phil, we're developing this comic book. And like for the studio, we want to have a couple of characters, some creature designs and some environments. So then we look through our roster and we say these artists would be perfect. We put them together on a team. We work with the studio or the creative team to collectively build, you know, like interest and trust. And then we develop from week to week and art direct to a finish. That is amazing. I have to ask this because, you know, I always want to close on something positive or even actionable, as you talked about. There's somebody out there listening right now, right? Either listening by themselves or listening with their kids or somebody who's in school right now who would love to follow in your footsteps. And maybe they're not in a place where there are a ton of other black artists around. What is some advice that you can offer them? What would you tell a 19-year-old Phil? There are, I would say, especially now, it's a lot easier um, because you don't necessarily even have to go to like a four-year university. There are tons of classes online and there are tons of artists posting their work where they do tutorials for free, where they just show you how they draw, what they draw. I think the key thing is to be immersed in it, surround yourself with like-minded people. And the key to drawing is easy. It's just doing it every day. I feel like everyone can draw. It's just practice and being diligent about it, continuing and staying the course. I think it's one of those things where people kind of get frustrated and they kind of fall off or they don't necessarily see an end to it. But I think if you can kind of put your effort into making sure that you are being consistent, that's the key. And I think that that's a quality that I share with both of my co-founders because they both are very diligent in making sure that they are surrounded by like-minded people and just continuing to attack the task at hand. That's kind of what you have to be. You have to be relentless in your passion and your dreams. 
Fubute Jr. is a production designer and concept artist. You can see his work in the upcoming film, Wakanda Forever. Bruh, thank you so much for joining me. Like, I could not be happier with having met you and what you're doing, man. Really appreciate it. Same here. I really appreciate you. And anytime, if you want to nerd out about anything, I'm here. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.